Blog Talk Radio. Hey there again. Dr. Ross Green here, coming to you live, as always, from the offices of Lives in the Balance here in Portland, Maine. Time for another edition of Helping Behaviorally Challenging Students. We do this once a month, first Monday of every month at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm very glad that you were able to listen in. Soon, although not yet, I will be joined by um, at least three of the uh, good folks who do this program with me. I know, at least they've told me this is true. Uh, It's always uh, an adventure here in the beginning of the program. I know that Nina and Tom and Carol will be joining in today. But, of course, in the busy life of a school, it's not always possible to uh, get things done right when you thought you could. So at the moment, we have none of them. Actually, that just turned out not to be true. Let's see whether it's Nina or Tom who just joined in. Is this Nina or Tom? It's Nina. How are you? I'm good. How are you? And guess who's going to be on the program with us today? Who? None other than Tom Ambrose, who has just just joined the call. That's awesome. Hello. Tom, is this your first program of this uh, school year or second? No, no, my second. I missed a couple. I feel bad. (laughs) Don't feel bad. We're just giving you a hard time. Nina, you haven't missed any, have you? Oh, I don't think so. <laughs> but I don't. I'm not sure. It's not my way to compare people. Uh, you know, some, some people are assistant superintendents, and some people are just school principals. And... Exactly. Exactly. Um, I well, uh, we have... I think it was more about pneumonia last time. I kind of oh, don't think you wanted me on the call. No, you're right. <laughs> and I've been told that Carol is going to sound like a frog when she joins the call today. So. Aww. We hope that she's not got the same thing you had. You and I both had that pneumonia. I had it before you, and it mm. takes a while. It now, was tough. Um, what's that? It was tough, yeah. It was intense. You're better now? Yes, yes. You must Thank be, because I happen to know for a fact that you were on the ski slopes this weekend. <laughs> yes, I was, <laughs> and I felt fine. <laughs> Great. Um, So, uh, enough of all that. We have some emails to respond to, and we have some things to talk about. Tom, you and I are always dying to talk about how current cutting-edge initiatives in education overlap with CPS, Collaborative and Proactive Solutions, as it is now known. Um, but let's save that. I've got an email that I would love to um, read and get your reactions to, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is a this is one that arrived um, not too long ago, maybe about two weeks ago. Uh, I am a special education teacher for students with emotional and behavioral disabilities. 
I have five fourth graders in my class with varying levels of aggression and emotionality. Today, I am losing one of my students, as his mother has decided to homeschool him. This year with him has been fraught with challenges, despite following all of the wisdom gleaned from your books, because at the very start of the year, we learned that the parents were a huge fan of your approach. Before, during, and after episodes of serious aggression, his school psychologist and I developed a strong rapport with this student, sought to understand the underlying issues, and strived to enhance those lagging skills through discussion, practice, and praise at the expense of the rest of the students based on the amount of time we would have to spend away from the classroom to have these conversations and powwows. We discussed with him best fit solutions to his problems. However, his solution was to be homeschooled away from the peers he perceived as instigating him. From a neutral perspective in this child's mind, instigating included his peers asking the student to please stop screaming because they were trying to learn, raising their hand to answer a question this student wanted to answer, etc. It would appear that the parents have taken a quite literal reading of the book and have decided to remove him from school to teach him at home where it is inevitable that he will further isolate himself. The parents could just no longer tolerate the ups and downs that come with an overall progression of positive progress that he was making in the school. Despite the outward distrust the parents were emanating and the student was inevitably picking up on. This is not to say that this child was a total social recluse. He spent most of his time in school getting along with his classmates just fine, either playing games during free time or having conversations about shared interests when permitted throughout the day. He demonstrated that he truly cared what his peers thought of him and wanted to be their friend. This is a little longer. The child's parents seemed to have fallen off board with trusting the school after reading The Explosive Child. They have time and time again communicated that if the student ended up in a seclusion room after 30, 40 minutes of him repeatedly aggressing toward myself or the psychologist, that we were to blame because we did not prevent it from happening. They did not want us to restrain or seclude the student, so often we would endure kicking, biting, and punching for upwards of 45 minutes until the student tired out, or we eventually had to cave to a form of his demand to preserve his and our well-being. The behaviors that resulted in his string of aggression that would eventually sometimes lead to seclusion or restraint would be throwing items at other students in the classroom after a perceived instigation, destroying the classroom or other students' property, or screaming that he wanted to kill another student, thus warranting him being escorted from the classroom to a safer location. This was entirely a result of a misperception of the other students' intents behind their actions. The other students did not intend to have him react the way he did. They were often just going about their day, thinking of meeting their own needs the way children do. He has told me that his parents no longer agree with consequences and are all about positive reinforcement, and therefore are afraid of him and how he will act so he is able to do what he wants. I should also mention that this student is an only child and his mother is a stay-at-home mom. I fear that the parenting pendulum in this family has swung too far from allowing this child to overcome obstacles as the parents are effectively removing every single bump in the road before the child has a chance to learn to deal with the challenges that life brings forth. I'm interested to hear your perspective on this scenario. Because the parents did a total 180 after reading the book, which I agree is an amazing book, 
but as part of a larger scheme of treatment for this exceptionally challenged child, it would be very meaningful to hear your thoughts. I have stayed up many nights ruminating on the events of the previous day with this student. Some outside input regarding the framework of your books as it applies to my student would be greatly appreciated. Um, This would help me in my future treatment of students with a similar profile. All right, so yes, a long email, but um, clearly a teacher who cares a lot, Mm -hmm. clearly a teacher who wants to do it right, And by the way, Carol or Susan have joined us. Is this Carol? Yes, it is. You don't sound like a frog. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't know how much of that. What's that? You won't talk too much? Okay. Have you been ill? Yeah. (laughs) Got it. Well, that makes three of us. Nina, have you been down with anything yet, or are you knocking on wood? Yeah, I really am knocking on a lot of wood right now. Nope, I'm (laughs) I won't even say I've been healthy, but I've been good. <laughs> Got it. Well, just keep washing your hands a lot. Um, so that's a pretty poignant email from a teacher who clearly cares but is grappling with why didn't this work and what do people who are adherents to the model have to say about um, – Allowing kids to struggle with the problems that affect their lives versus, and I know that this, you know, if we had the boy's mom on the phone, she might disagree completely with the, and probably would disagree with the teacher's assessment of removing all bumps from the road. But um, my bet is that this is a good time. I'm, I'm happy to weigh in after you three do, but. Um, my bet is that the three of you have a great sense of what the teacher's going through and have some thoughts to respond to her email. Who wants to go first? <clears throat> I missed a little bit of the beginning of the email, Ross. Have they done an ALSOP with this student? Well, uh, the student has now left the school to be homeschooled. Oh, I see. Um, and so... Um, I don't know if an ALSIP was done or not, but um, apparently that opportunity has now passed. Well, I, I'll just offer that that um, <clears throat> it's hard to solve problems collaboratively if you remove the stimulus that is creating the environment that re- requires the growth. So if the student is having some cognitive distortions and an inability to accurately perceive the motivations or intents of others or is having frustration, tolerance for frustration issues. Um, I'm not sure that taking them out of school is the solution. It might, it's kind of like plan seeing the whole thing. And, and so I, I just, I, I feel bad because I, I, I want to help and I know that the parents probably have amazing intentions and they really, love their child and they're trying to do the right thing. But on the other hand, I think that um, there's a lot of work to be done here on the fam- uh, from a family systems perspective. That, uh, you know, the, 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 the first question I would want to ask the parents is, you know, I, I noticed that you chose to take your child from school. What's up with that? Mm-hmm. I, and I know it sounds well, trite, I mean, but no, I, I mean, I sincerely, I really want to know their concerns and perspective and, 
Yep. Yeah. Well, let's say that he... I'm just going to play devil's advocate, or actually maybe not devil's advocate, because I think that many parents these days are not willing to have their kid placed in locked door seclusion and restrained at school. And so I've worked with my share of parents who came at it from a different angle. If I can't get the school to stop restraining and secluding my kid, I'm not sending my kid to school. I'll do it myself. Mm-hmm. And so well, yeah. Go ahead, Nina. Well, I just my heart's going out to both, you know, both both the family and the school because it sounds like a lot of what the school was doing was was absolutely yeah. working. You know, I heard in the email saying at the expense of others, but I I don't think it was. There was so much sounds like there was so much progress with a child that was really challenging. There was a lot of positive in the email about things that were going well. But I also have so much empathy for, I imagine, sending your child that's challenging, even when there's all this great stuff happening. You know, I know that it's such, it's, you know, there's such a state of anxiety for a parent to know that even if the school, even if the school's on board and doing everything they're supposed to be doing, there's still that, uh, you know, waiting by the phone all day to see how the child's doing. So, you know, I kind of even even though I think the model was absolutely being sounds like being used, tried and implemented in the school, um, it's still a hard journey for a parent with extremely challenging children. And Carol, I also want to weigh in. A, sorry. <laughs> oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I also see that it sounds like also that maybe the family needs some help with understanding the model because I heard like positive reinforcement and, um, you know, re- removing every bump that that's not, you know, sometimes that is what is taken and that's not, you know, that's not the model. So that there's some education there that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Carol, what do you think? By the way, we've been joined by Susan. Susan, you did not get to hear the email, so you may not, it's a lengthy one, so I can't read it again, so you may not be able to weigh in, although you can pro- this is a kid who is now being homeschooled, and I read an email from his teacher who is clearly agonizing over um, what they did at school to try to help him and the fact that the parents um, may be using the explosive child as their rationale for, um, well, perhaps their rationale for not wanting their kid to be restrained or secluded at school. Um, but, Carol, what do you want to weigh in here? <coughs> Good. Sorry. <laughs> there was my frog again. Um, I'm, I'm actually still thinking. Again, I didn't hear the beginning of the email because I dialed in a little late, so... Um, I caught the part about, um, you know, some of the behaviors that the teacher had seen. Um, and I, I heard an allusion to a skill that, that the teacher felt was lagging, and I think Tom repeated it, that the child was having difficulty um, understanding and recognizing the motivations of others and understanding, you know, his perception wasn't accurate. <clears throat> um, yeah, but I didn't get the whole context, so I don't feel like I should weigh in right now. So I'll weigh in, um, and I'm going to send the email to you um, so that you and Su- you and Susan, so that you can um, 
read it and then possibly okay. weigh in if you want to. Sure. Um, let's see if I can do two things at once here. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, th I think I can. Um, here's here's my take on it. Um, if a kid is being restrained and secluded at school a lot, that tells me, and feel free to jump in here if you disagree, that tells me that whatever we're doing isn't working as well as we would like it to. Because he's, if a kid is still being restrained and secluded at school a lot, and it does seem like it was a lot, mm -hmm. then something's missing from this picture in terms of what's going on with this kid and what we're doing. Here's, here's the other side of it. If teachers are getting bruised after 30 to 40 minutes of... Um, uh, enduring kicking, biting, and punching. Mm. Something's missing from this picture. Mm -hmm. Where so this is not going well, right? No parent wants their kid to be restrained or secluded at school. And by the way, if if that's what mom and dad got from the explosive child, I'm good with that, because. Mm -hmm. um, because we should be restraining and secluding kids at school at a bare minimum, and this kid was not getting the bare minimum. This kid was getting more than the bare minimum, but that's simply a signal. Uh, there's something that needs to be here that isn't. And if the people who are trying to help him at school are getting beat up, kicking, biting, and punching, this isn't working for them either. So all of that says to me, Something's missing from this kid's treatment picture. The problem is, I can't tell what that something is. What I can tell from this email, and once again, we might have gotten a very different perspective if the kid's mom was weighing in. But what we're hearing is that they're definitely eventually, or at least from the very beginning, there became a disconnect between what parents felt the way their kids should be treated and what the folks at school felt they were doing well and what the parents felt the folks at school were not doing well. Um, so all of this to me is just, it's tragic, and I feel very badly for everybody, Um that's what this email says to me. This this wasn't going well for good reasons. And the part that I can't tell, I can't. I don't actually have a great sense of the degree to which the parent or parents miscomprehend the CPS model. I don't. I can't tell that just from this email. And I can't tell just from this email how well the CPS model was being implemented at school. But the part that puzzles me is that we are hearing from this clearly well-intentioned classroom teacher that they were doing the model, and we are hearing that the well-intentioned mom felt that they weren't. There's a disconnect there as well. 
that's what I'm gleaning, that this wasn't going well and people are having a hard time figuring out how to get the ship back on track. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts yeah, about I that? Would, I, I would agree that, that that's uh, – um, <clears throat> I think it, it's hard because – I, coming from a perspective of just trying to be compassionate for everyone's frustration in the situation, and I went down the parent route first, and I can imagine their response being, the, "Well, what's up with it? Is my kid isn't is being restrained and secluded, and I don't want that." And so, then I can imagine the teacher's side saying, "The reason why we're restraining and secluding is because of safety. We're concerned about his safety and the safety of others." And I think that, that I guess I'd love to hear your feedback, Ross, because my initial instinct would be to put everyone in a room and, in a room and say, okay, we all want what's best for this kid. Right. Um, what, what, what are we going to do to work together to try to anticipate the situations that create the, the, uh, you know, the demands that are required of him and then his inability to meet those demands? so that we end up in a situation where he's so frustrated that we we start to feel as a staff that seclusion is the only option or 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 restraint and and so i guess i wish i could put them all in a room and kind of facilitate collaborative problems uh, sorry um collaborative and proactive solutions for them as a you group you didn't say all the way so that's an improvement i know i'm doing better man i'm trying you're getting better mm-hmm. I'm, just, I'm a habitual person um but i think that that getting those those things to to happen um would be a logical next step and i don't know if it if it uh, um has gone so far down a road that that can't happen now you know if if the parents are so frustrated there's just so many unknowns to to comment except that i would agree with you that it's tragic for everyone involved and one thing that's really hard for me is that i just don't want anyone to take away from a situation that by reading your work Ross, that the solution would be to quit, give up, or just kind of say, uh, oh, well. you know, oh well, or or, 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 or road. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I again, I just go back to my initial response that d- d- removing the stimulus that creates the X that you've taught us about, Ross. You know, the 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 basically the stimulus and his response to the stimulus is. I just don't believe philosophically that that's going to solve. It's in the long run that it's it may plan C it for now, which may be necessary and okay, but ultimately we have to figure out how to how to help him to succeed in in challenging environments because life will expect that of him someday. Others, right? And it'd be it would be really interesting to know the child's perspective right now of being at home, and I totally agree as well that doing some plan B conversations with both parties to figure out a solution to even see if the parents are interested in trying mm. school at whatever mm-hmm. whatever level that would be. Um, so it's almost you do two different kinds of plan B conversations <clears throat> as as a you know, with the parents in the school and then with the child and how to, if the parents agree that coming back to school is something they're willing to try, then working with the child to figure out solutions on on doing that. So but I think it's. It sounds like from the email again. It's hard to tell that this, that they are the school and the home had a really nice relationship for a while, and we're working together at some you know at some level. So I would think that that could you know you can work on that. And the school, I know this teacher is really losing sleep and so upset about it. And it sounds like reaching back out and seeing if that could work is 
definitely something that would be possible. So, Ross, this is Susan, Carol. I've, just read, I've read yeah, the email yeah. now, and, um, and I, I guess I'm just a bit confused about what was the collaborative relationship between the school and the home because both seemed to feel like they were implementing collaborative and proactive solutions, but um, I don't know. I guess, again, there's there's a lot of detail in the letter, but not necessarily the detail that would help us to come to be able to give some advice. For example, mm-hmm. you know, what, what were some of the um, prioritized unsolved problems? Mm-hmm. Like it, it talks about... Um, you know, when students, say a student would ask him to be quieter or something, use a quieter voice, um, and yet there were large periods of time that it says that the teacher said that he was getting along well with peers, playing with them nicely and, and right. caring for them and everything. So um, I, I think that maybe, you know, having A, both parents and school staff discuss their understanding and the and the, the whole process, like what they believe collaborative and proactive solutions is about and helping understand from each side of the of the coin you know how does that what does that look like at home and what does that look like at school and you know work on the ALSEP together and prioritize things together and um, I don't know it's it's just strange for me to hear well the school believes that they're doing uh, they've read the book and they're doing it sounds like they're doing plan B conversations in whatever form that they think that is um, and then, you know, it sounds like when they said that the student's, um, <clears throat> the student's uh, solution that he presented was to be homeschooled, to get away from the student. So it just sounds like that was, I just, there just wasn't that um, uh, collaborative focus from both the parents and the school to be working on this together. So I think I, I'm along thinking the same thoughts as Nina that, you know, if if there was going to be another try, and, and I don't know if the parents are open to, you know, trying the public school system again, but it seems like that if they're both kind of in a similar starting place, even if it's not identical, that there is a, an opportunity to move forward together. Um, I would even maybe suggest if they could attend a workshop together and so that they're mm-hmm. getting the same kind of information and understanding the – because it's, it's different when you read the book – um, versus attending a workshop and, and actually going through some training, I think you actually get a much better understanding of the practical application rather than just the philosophy of the model. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Susan, you want to weigh in? Um, I guess I'm <laughs> right now where they're at. I I think that they all need a break, and I think doing the homeschooling <laughs> is a good is a good start. Um, but I would like to I would like to suggest that uh, the teacher stay in contact with the parent to see whether the same behaviors start to occur at home, and then maybe infusing CPS in that regard, and then a gradual transition back into school. Because I I don't know I don't believe that those behaviors are going to stop because of being at home. I think that they need to use a collaborative approach to help that to happen. So that's what I. That's my Well, and just to be clear, because the teacher asked me to weigh in, the CPS approach is not about dropping all expectations. Mm-hmm. It is not about removing all bumps from the road. Mm-hmm. Um, it is about 
prioritizing expectations because many behaviorally challenging kids have a large pile of unsolved problems, and it is counterproductive to try working on them all at once. So that should clear up any misperceptions about that. Mm -hmm. Um, The CPS model does not view restraint and seclusion kindly. Those are often acts of desperation that occur very far downstream when a highly predictable, unsolved problem has set in motion challenging behavior yet again. And so all of the action in CPS is not best thought of as a crisis management program. It is a crisis prevention program. All of the action takes place upstream. That's where the problems that are causing challenging behavior can be identified and solved so they don't cause the challenging behaviors that are floating downstream and then causing adults to feel that they must restrain or seclude a kid. The better we are at solving the problems upstream, the less restraint and seclusion we do downstream. Mm -hmm. And that's why CPS has a stellar track record of reducing restraint and seclusion um, because you're busy solving the problems that are occurring upstream so that the behaviors don't float to you downstream. Um, And that problem solving is collaborative and proactive Um, I don't pretend to know what's getting in a kid's way unless I ask him. Mm -hmm. And I don't pretend that it's going to work to run with a solution that is arrived at without the kid's input and without the kid's sign-off. And those are the key elements of collaborative and proactive solutions. If those were going on, that's great. And now I'm not exactly sure where the home folks and the school folks disagree with each other. Mm-hmm. If, those folk, if those things weren't in place, then I don't think it would be that hard to figure out why um, there was a disconnect. And I'll also say that um, I'll yank kids out of the school if I come to the belief that the amount of times that the kid is being restrained and secluded at school is not going to change. Um, If I can't get that to end fairly quickly, I'm going to yank the kid because um, those are among the most toxic things we can do to a kid. Um, I was listening to one of the talks on Lives in the Balance, and there's a fellow who, I guess it's two years ago, he manages or runs a a teen or adult facility, well, actually more of a teen facility, and he was talking about how CPS has really reduced the amount of restraints and seclusion um, that they do for those students. It was it was a ridiculous amount. It was a, a great thing to listen to. I actually showed it to my husband who works in an alternate school, and he was saying there were 600 um, episodes of restraint, and it was down to 31 in, in uh, such a short amount of time. It was... It's actually a, a very good talk. I can't remember the fellow's name, but he's mm-hmm. got, he's on Lives in the Balance, so it was good. Got it. He's in he's in one of those programs. You know, the other point mm-hmm. I wanted to make. You know, first of all, that proves that it can be done. 
the mm-hmm. other point I've been making lately is, you know, in academics, when when we're there's this concept in special education called the least restrictive environment. Yep. Mm-hmm. I've I've um, uh, done a takeoff on that called the least toxic response. <laughs> we should be intervening with the most effective and least toxic response. And restraint and seclusion are among the most toxic responses. Paddling is among the most toxic responses. And if we are intervening using the most toxic response, something ain't right. Something isn't going the way it ought to be going. Um, There you have it. I hope that clears things up as it relates to the CPS model. Um, Lots of details missing, Carol, as you were astutely pointing out. We do have another email that we could do, but I actually want, don't want to give short shift to the thing that um, Tom sometimes pines to talk about. So let's take our last 13 minutes today and talk about it instead. We'll save this other email uh, for another time. Um, Tom, one of the things that um, you've been quoted as saying is that CPS aligns very nicely with many of the initiatives and cutting-edge ways of teaching academics that are being put out there these days. And um, I thought maybe you could expand on that a little bit, and then we'll get others to weigh in. Sound like a plan? Sure. I I think that what what it really boils down to is pretty simple. There's a, a core philosophy that is being um, uh, presented and taught and used around helping kids to learn and grow at their at their um, zone of proximal development, which is essentially um, one one step beyond their com- or at the edge of their comfort zone would be a good way to put it. And I, I think that um, the nice thing is is that as we do assessments for children and, and try to figure out what they know and can do and we think about what they know we can do on a continuum toward uh, a goal. So in other words, we might have uh, a benchmark or a plan that we'd like to see students achieve by the end of the year with regard to reading, writing, or math. And then we do assessments with kids and figure out, you know, this is what the student knows and can do, and this is the next step to move them toward our our achievement goal for this year. Um, I I think that, that... collaborative and proactive solutions is a very similar process in the sense that we do the assessment, the ALSUP, and we work together to figure out what what might be the the you know, what I like to say is choose one or solve none, you know, problem. So we choose one problem and we work hard to solve it and make some growth toward our, our goals. Um I just see a lot of overlap in the process, the, the overall processes for both behavior and academics, but there's also a component of students problem-solving while they're working. So my time at Columbia University, learning about the teacher's college reading and writing workshop models and the idea that kids can set goals for themselves and, and solve problems with their friends or by using the resources in the room, such as charts and posters and and strategies to solve uh, reading or writing problems or math problems. Uh, there's just a, this general culture of collaboration that's starting to be creative, created really effectively in classrooms. And I'd also say that the responsive classroom is largely 
um, a component of this work, this culture of, of trust and building a, a, a way to work together as a class. So kind of what I'm seeing is this this perspective of a, a synergy that is maybe happening, um, I don't know, f- for lack of a better term, through some kind of collective consciousness around people recognizing that people learn best when they're working at their edge of their comfort zone combined with an opportunity to express their their concerns and needs and to have a voice in the way that they solve the problem to grow. And I think voice and choice is a a huge component of this. I mean, just like if we're working to solve a behavioral problem, if the child has a voice in the solution, um, if a child has a choice in the medium through which they work in school, whether that be the topic they write about or the book they choose, the books that they read, or the way they express their thoughts and feelings in writing or or um, maybe another medium, I, I do think that there's a, a component of creativity that becomes engaged that gets buy-in for everybody involved. Um, so these are just, I mean, that's just a little piece of kind of, really 13 minutes would be very difficult to to, to even encapsulate this whole idea, but I'd love to hear the rest of the panel's thoughts about this idea that that, that working together and having voice and choice and solving problems creatively, how, how are you seeing this also in your schools as being kind of like an overall model? I, I totally agree at, at, in our school that it, everything really aligns together and that the student voice is sort of throughout all subject areas. And um, it's so exciting when you do have a new initiative. And I always like, oh, it matches so much our philosophy around the CPS model. So you, we kind of gravitate towards those things. But also the the, the newest cutting-edge things seem to really align. Um, student voice is definitely something we talk a lot about. And you know, we just had some in-service around self-differentiation, which just reminded me so much of the model that it was all about not only about differentiating for the students with academics, but allowing the children the choice to self-differentiate and trusting the kids that they will find their just right level in everything. So it's giving sort of that trust and voice to to children. So I, I, I agree as well. Carol? Well, uh, here in BC, we've we've got a new curriculum in uh, K to nine right now that um, really encompasses uh, student uh, competencies in communication, creativity, problem solving. Um, so obviously, the model is a really uh, good practice that will help work on those skills, um, and they can be done, you know, with when it comes to behavior and expectations, but also. Uh, in learning as well. So if a student's having difficulty with a learning task, I think using the the, the model and having conversations with kids and, again, giving them uh, that voice in how their learning is going um, is is really the direction that we're going as well. And I think, well, right now I'm sure Susan has spoken about it, but we've got, she's got a, a workshop series going with how many now students? 160, 180 educators? A lot. Uh, that are all interested in learning the model, and and uh, it's a sign that uh, that it's really resonating with with people in our district for sure. And I think across British Columbia, it's really aligning with the curriculum and the, the d- direction that education is going here for sure. I think that that voice of being proactive is also a component of this, right? Planning ahead. Let's well, form it. If we can be right? proactive with proactive with academics and behavior, then just as someone said earlier. 
it's very clear that if we're proactive about things, that we reduce the number of restraints. I couldn't agree with Ross more that those toxic interventions, they're not even, they're disgusting and very concerning for me personally. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't want any kid to be held or secluded ever. Well, it's like it's and, like toxic grading strategies where you just give kids zeros yep. and Fs as punishment, right? Like it's it's yep. very much the same mindset. So we're looking at formative, growth-oriented behavior interventions that are going to give kids feedback on their behavior and allow them to work with us in determining what are the next steps to help solve those problems, just as we would with learning problems. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That was put very, very well. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Susan, do you want to weigh in? No, I think Carol covered it. Way to go, Carol. <laughs> <laughs> Susan and I had a great uh, a great uh, breakfast meeting last week because we're we're going to co-facilitate one of the sessions in a couple weeks, and it was wonderful to sit down and just kind of rock our brains again on the on the CPS mode. It was awesome. In <laughs> um, Ross, you know, it was, I was just going to say it was great. I brought. Um, a number of staff members to the conference in the in the fall, and my staff is is just absolutely as a district. There, the feedback has been super positive about the correlation between your work and the work that we're doing with Teachers College at Columbia. Hmm. So they they really want to learn more about the model. So that that's part of why I've been trying to connect with you. So it's it's really catching a, a fire here too, similar to what was described in British Columbia. That's, that's great. great. Um, and just, I just want to clarify one thing. Um, I think that while restraint and seclusion are sometimes used in a punitive way, I think that in the email that we started the program with, um, it sounds like the teacher who was writing in, uh, the, the, the fact that they were enduring 45 minutes of being beat up by a kid tells us that they were not using it in that way. Yes, um, I would agree. Yes. And, you know, so frequently, uh, so that's, uh, you know, while it's true, restraint and seclusion can be used punitively, um, and I've seen that, most often I see that it is used way downstream mm-hmm. um, when there's nothing left to do, at least at that moment. But speaking of being proactive, the whole goal is to not find ourselves in that moment because we're so busy yes. dealing with what's going on upstream. And that that's academic, that's behavioral. If you're if a student is having difficulty meeting whether it's academic or behavioral ex- expectations, and by the way, if you have to my ballpark estimate on behavioral challenges at school, my ballpark on the percentage of those that are caused by academic difficulties, difficulty meeting academic expectations, it's 70 to 80%, my anecdotal estimate. And so um, I have a great deal of difficulty separating the behavioral from the academic anyway. Mm -hmm. And so it's no accident that the approach to behavior that I would espouse would be the exact same approach to academics that I would espouse. If a kid is having difficulty meeting an academic expectation, by golly, we want to know why. And we want that information Mm -hmm. from the horse's mouth. Right, and I think people confuse data with information. Because academic data is useless if it doesn't give us information to make 
conscious decisions about what to do to help the kid with their zone of proximal development. And, and that's where the specificity of the ALSUP is critical to have proactive conversations that actually lead to solutions that build skills. The two things are so closely aligned, and it is, I remember sitting in Columbia University with Lucy Hawkins speaking, and literally trying to text Ross as fast as I could, I can't believe it, they're talking about exactly what we're working on with behavior, but through academics here. And, and it's that synergy that I want to kind of think more about and talk more about. Uh, well, it moved the data dramatically in my old school, and it's working here too. And unfortunately, your voice is going to be the last voice on this topic <laughs> of the day because we are now out of time. Thank you all. Uh, I thought this was a very interesting program uh, flowing from a very poignant email from a very dedicated teacher. On that note, mm -hmm. we're going to have to do this again next month. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to all. Bye. Take care. Bye.